Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. I was able to watch the bear's eyes and its face as it was watching me. And I could see its eyes move around and I could see it look at each of my eyes and my mouth. And I thought, in this case, I'm not studying polar bears. This polar bear just studied me. When I think about the future, I can't help but wonder what kind of world would be waiting for kids like me. Will we still be able to go sledding and build snowmen in the winter? Or run through sprinklers and go to water parks in the summer? Will the air outside be safe enough for us to breathe? I'd like to think so. That's why I'm trying to learn as much as I can about climate change science, stories, and solutions, and share what I learn with all of you. Together, we can decide what type of future we want for our planet and discover the power we have in shaping it. This is We the Children, the podcast where kids talk climate change. I'm Zach, your host. I'm 12 years old, and I live in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Claire, fellow eco-enthusiast and Zach's teacher. Hey, Zach, what are we talking about this week? Today, we're meeting Elizabeth Kruger. She lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and is an expert on polar bears and the important role they play in our ecosystem. Elizabeth studies Arctic conservation and works for the World Wildlife Fund, also known as the WWF, the world's leading conservation organization. As the WWF's Arctic Wildlife Manager, Elizabeth works at the forefront of Arctic conservation, leading efforts to help polar bears and other marine mammals coexist with people in an increasingly warm and ice-free Arctic. I've always wondered how people and polar bears can live together safely in the Arctic. I'm sure Elizabeth has a lot to teach us. Throughout this conversation, I'll share some questions you can discuss with your friends, parents, and classmates. And I'll do my best to define some key terms and concepts that come up as we go. Bundle up. It's time for an Alaskan expedition. Let's meet Elizabeth and dig into her snow-capped stories about polar bears and Arctic conservation. 
sometimes I like to say that I don't know that I really decided to study Arctic conservation. Sometimes I feel like it kind of chose me. I was one of those kids who was interested in pretty much everything. And when I was told in college that I had to narrow it down, I went with a default major, actually, which was Russian. I ended up moving to Russia after I graduated from college and spent four years in Siberia in an absolutely beautiful, stunning place near Lake Baikal. And there I was able to volunteer for some conservation organizations and also some scientists and really fell in love with the place and the area of work. Wow. So you spent time in Siberia and also Alaska. Both are pretty remote places. Why do you think you chose to live there? I think I've always been drawn to places that are kind of at the extreme. And I enjoy seeing how humans interact with nature when you really have to be a part of nature and not apart from nature. Yeah, I'm sure there's difficulties about it too. Yeah, and I think the difficulties are what makes people come together. And I like to say sometimes you find the warmest people in the coldest places. And if you ignore somebody else's issues or if you don't engage with other people, it could be life or death in in a lot of these places. And so people really have a way of rallying around each other and creating a very a very warm environment when the outside is really is really cold. I like that. The warmest people in the coldest places. <laughs> And can we learn anything unique about climate change patterns by studying its impact on northern areas like this? Absolutely. We know that the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the planet. So with every new report that comes out, they find it's warming even faster. So right now it's three to four times as fast as the rest of the world. Wow. And so... You really can't live in a place like this and not see climate change happening right in front of you. As Elizabeth said, the Arctic is warming much faster than the rest of the planet. Since the Industrial Revolution, the whole planet has warmed by about 1.2 degrees Celsius. But in the Arctic, that number is around 3 degrees. Why is that? Well, there are a few key reasons. One, amplification. Less ice and snow means less sunlight being reflected, and more sunlight and warmth being absorbed by the dark ground. Two, convection. Imagine that the Earth is a big concrete playground. In sunny spots, the ground gets warm, making the air go up because hot air rises. This happens a lot in places like the tropics, but in the icy Arctic, it's not as sunny, and the warm air doesn't rise as much. Now, picture invisible blankets making things warmer. That's the greenhouse gases. In sunny places, that warm blanket goes up and down, spreading out the heat vertically. But in the cold Arctic, it mostly stays near the ground, warming it up even more. 3. Water vapor. Water vapor is super important for a climate. It travels from warm to cold places, helping balance temperatures between the tropics and the poles. In a warmer world, we expect more water vapor in the air, especially in the Arctic. This affects the Arctic in three ways. 
First, water vapor insulates, warming things up. Second, when moist air goes to the poles, it cools and turns into liquid water, releasing more heat and warming the area. Third, more moisture means more clouds, which also warms the Arctic. Scientists are still figuring out exactly how fast the Arctic will warm, but it's possible that we might see the first ice-free Arctic summer in as little as 20 years. What, to you, makes polar bears an animal worth studying? Well, I think polar bears are just an amazing species. If you ever get the chance to see one, they're really, really intelligent. A lot of people in the Arctic say that they're on par with people for intelligence. And when you watch them and you can watch them kind of solve problems in their life and, and look at things, and it's, I would say it's, it's very easy to understand that. And also they're an important part of the ecosystem. They're an important part of people's lives. There's a lot of reasons why they're important. I actually had the chance to see one or actually two while I was on a trip to Svalbard and we saw a few walking across the ice floats. It's pretty spectacular, huh? I don't think it'll ever get old for me to watch polar bears. Definition time. You just heard me mention Svalbard, and you might be wondering, wait, where in the world did that go? Svalbard is a Norwegian archipelago, or a group of islands, between mainland Norway and the North Pole. One of the world's northernmost inhabited areas, it's known for its rugged terrain of glaciers and frozen tundra, and is home to polar bears as well as arctic foxes and Svalbard reindeer. The northern lights are visible during the winter, and the summer brings the midnight sun, which is a fun way of saying that they get sunlight 24 hours a day in the summer. Man, imagine how good you could get at basketball if you never had to go home when it gets dark. What's been your most memorable encounter or moment with a polar bear? You know, it's really hard to choose just one. Almost any time you see a polar bear is, is pretty spectacular. I remember I was actually in Churchill in Canada and was on a, a polar rover, which are these, these giant vehicles that are permitted to go into a protected area there on these special roads. And the rovers can stop and polar bears are doing their thing, waiting for sea ice to form. And so some of them are kind of bored and they might come up to one of those rovers just to see what it's doing in, in their backyard, essentially. And I was on there and a polar bear came up and it stood on its hind legs and it put its paws up against the rover where I was. And I was looking out the window and it felt like my face was a foot or two away from this bear. But I was able to watch the bear's eyes and its, its face as it was watching me. And I could see its eyes move around my face. And I could see it look at each of my eyes and my mouth and the outside of my face. And it kind of sniffed a little bit. And then it got down and it went over and looked at another person that way. And I thought, well... In this case, I'm not studying polar bears. This polar bear just studied me. That's really cool. 
You probably don't live in a place where a polar bear is likely to get up close and personal with you, but maybe you've been lucky enough to encounter another kind of wildlife. Have you ever gone diving in the ocean and mingled with sharks? Or gone on safari observing lions and elephants in their natural habitats? Or maybe you've had some interesting animal visitors right in your own backyard? Where are some places you might find yourself interacting with wild animals? What should you do to stay safe when you meet them? How old are polar bears as a species? Well, scientists are still looking at that, but we think that they split off from brown bears or grizzly bears about 500,000 years ago, which is, as far as species goes, it's relatively recently and almost on par with what we think humans actually separated out. Maybe humans are a little bit older than that, but kind of in the same ballpark. Where are they most often found on the planet? So polar bears are only in the Arctic, and there's five countries that have polar bears within their territory. And we call those the polar bear range states. That would be Canada, Russia, United States because of Alaska, Norway because of Svalbard, and Greenland are the five countries. But there's 19 actually different subpopulations of polar bears all around the Arctic. Wow. Divided between those five countries. So there are different subpopulations of polar bears, but what sets polar bears apart from other types of bears? Elizabeth says that there are a few distinguishing features, starting with their adaptations to life in the Arctic. Some of those adaptations are the color of their fur, obviously. They live in a white environment. And as you may have noticed in Svalbard, when you try to look for a polar bear, sometimes it's really hard to spot them because they're white on white. Actually, when, when researchers are out looking for polar bears to study, often they'll look for polar bear tracks first. And then if you find a set of fresh tracks, if you keep following the tracks, eventually it'll lead you to a polar bear. There are also physical adaptations to their heads, teeth, and paws. The shape of their head and their teeth are really well adapted to catching and eating their primary prey, which is mostly ringed seal and some bearded seal. And so they've got a snout and teeth that are really well situated for sticking into a seal hole in the ice and grabbing a seal and pulling it back. They have a really, really strong neck to be able to do that and strong jaws. And they've also got claws and the pads of their feet are well adapted to walking on snow and ice. They're so good at navigating their habitat. They can even walk on really thin ice, like ice that I would not walk on. A polar bear can go across and they do it by spreading out their body weight. And so they kind of spread out their their front paws and their hind paws, and they look like they're kind of shimmying across the ice on their stomach. So they spread out their mass so that they don't break through the ice. Polar bears are also unique because no matter what, they always carry their lunch on them. They also have an amazing layer of blubber on them, and that helps keep them warm. And it also is essentially like having a refrigerator that you keep on your back or on your belly. So when they eat a seal, they really prefer to eat the, the seal blubber. And so sometimes if they're not super hungry, they'll leave behind the rest of the seal, actually, and other animals will come and, and scavenge on it. 
So sometimes when you see an Arctic fox or a raven or another bird around, that's actually a signal that there might be a polar bear nearby because the Arctic foxes have learned that, hey, if you follow a polar bear around, you might get left a treat, a meal of a seal. But polar bears are able to take that fat from a seal and put it almost completely into their own fat. And so if they eat a few seals in a row, or they happen across like a whale that's washed up on shore in the summertime, they can pack on hundreds of pounds and they don't have to eat for a while. They're really good at hunting seals, but seals are really well built for avoiding being caught by polar bears. So they're not always successful every time they try to catch a seal. And that layer of fat just gives them a little bit of buffer room so they don't have to eat every day. Are there any animals that pose a threat to polar bears? In the Arctic, generally, we think that the biggest threat to polar bears would be people. And that's mostly from climate change. As far as other animals, you know, polar bears are apex predators. So nothing is out there trying to eat polar bears. But there are some animals that are pretty formidable that polar bears are trying to eat. I think a polar bear would be pretty concerned about a walrus that was trying to, say, defend itself or, or its young from a polar bear. They're enormous and they've got some pretty formidable tusks. Other than that, there's species that have not been in the same place as polar bears forever. And those are some of those are orcas that are coming up. And in theory, an orca could be um, also pretty formidable. But that's kind of a new phenomenon as we're starting to see more orcas come up further north. We interrupt this program for a local weather bulletin, where we find out how climate change has affected the weather where our guests and listeners live. This week, Elizabeth tells us about the weather in Alaska. This is a change that's happened not right in my backyard, but in Alaska, in a place where I'm actually supposed to go visit with a community soon. And up until about 13 years ago, I think, every winter they would get this really nice platform of sea ice. They live in a really tiny island and there's not anywhere flat on the island. It's basically all on this cliff. And so in the wintertime before, they were able to land an airplane on the sea ice right out in front of the village, and you could get goods and people could fly in and airplanes could land. They have not been able to build a runway in the winter there for the past 13 years. And so now the only way to get to that island is by helicopter. And that to me is, is a pretty stark impact of, of climate change. Thanks for that update, Elizabeth. That's a big change. We're wishing safe landings to everyone over there. If you'd like to provide a local weather report about how climate change is impacting your home, please visit WeTheChildrenPodcast.com, fill out the consent form, and drop Zach a voicemail. So, 2023 marked the 50th anniversary of the Agreement of Conservation of Polar Bears. Could you explain what that was and if it's still in place and relevant today? Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is still in place. It is still relevant. 
it was a really significant agreement where earlier on I talked about the five polar bear range states and those countries got together in 1973 and they all acknowledged that the biggest threat to polar bears around the Arctic back then was commercial hunting over harvest. And back then there were a lot of people from outside the Arctic who were coming in and, and hunting large numbers of polar bears. And that was a big threat. And so these five countries got together and they basically stopped that. They banned the commercial hunting of polar bears and they fixed the problem. However, we have a new problem that people were less concerned about in 1973, but is the biggest threat to polar bears now. And that is their loss of habitat. So loss of sea ice that they rely on caused by warming from climate change. And actually in 2013, some of those same range states came back together and kind of renewed their commitment to work together on polar bear conservation and, and came up with a new plan that they're still working on right now. But really the biggest thing now, beyond just those five countries, it's all of us around the world need to address this, this global problem of climate change. Definition time! What exactly is sea ice and why is it so important? Sea ice is frozen seawater that forms, expands, and melts in the ocean. For the most part, sea ice expands during winter months and melts during summer months. But in certain regions, some sea ice remains all year round. Elizabeth compares it to the soil of the Amazon rainforest and says sea ice is key to the whole ecosystem for Arctic animals. Microorganisms live in it, and when it gets thinner during the warmer months, more sunlight can reach the algae that forms, feeding other organisms that fish eat. Then, larger creatures like seals eat those fish. And then, polar bears eat the seals, if they can catch them. Sea ice also provides a platform for polar bears and other animals to travel on. In fact, polar bears tend to spend more time on sea ice than they do on land. But because of climate change, sea ice is melting more quickly. This affects polar bears' ability to migrate, find mates, and hunt. If there's ice out there, polar bears don't need to go on land. In some parts of the Arctic, polar bears prefer to build their dens on land in places where maybe the ice isn't as stable. It's kind of an open question with climate change, but we think that bears are starting at least to den more on land. And then definitely in places where the ice is receding and melting in the summertime for longer periods and the polar bears don't have anywhere to go, then they will definitely come onto land. And it's not really a great option for them because when they're out on the sea ice, that's where the seals are. And so when they come on land, there's not really a lot of food that's really well suited for them. There's a lot of things they could probably eat. But remember when I said that polar bears have that amazing ability to take seal fat and put it on themselves as polar bear fat? Well, they can't really do that when it's like grass or even a fish or something like that. So 
it's generally thought to be better for polar bears for them to be out on the ice and be able to hunt. But they do use land and they always have used land at least a little bit. Due to changes in their environment, polar bears may have to make some big adjustments to their routine, like finding new places to den or eating less of their favorite food, seals. Have you ever had to make a big change to where you live or to your daily habits? How did it make you feel? How do you think polar bears will feel about the lifestyle changes they might have to make because of the climate? Is it possible to estimate what the polar bear population is today and how it compares to the population when the agreement was put in place? Uh, That's such a good question. I wish we could do that more easily. The short answer is yes, we can estimate. We estimate there's somewhere between 25,000 and 31,000 polar bears right now. However, you know, that estimate, it's based on data that's different quality in different places in the Arctic. So there are, remember how I said there's 19 different subpopulations? Well, there's some of those that have been studied really well. And they're pretty sure they know they have what we call high confidence in the number of polar bears that are in those populations. But there's other populations where we really don't know. So when we say estimate, yes, we can make an estimate. But I wouldn't say that that is set in stone. You know, it's not a precise number. It's an educated guess that's based on some really precise numbers and some really unprecise numbers kind of all put together. Polar bears are really hard to study. They're fairly solitary animals. They don't spend a lot of time clumped together. They have enormous ranges and they kind of all spread out a little bit on that enormous range. And so if you're a scientist and you're trying to count them, you would have to be in a lot of different places all at once and you'd have to be there for a long time to to really be able to count. So one of the things we've been working on is trying to figure out some new technology, some new methods to try to make studying polar bears a little cheaper, a little bit easier to get more of that data. So we're, we're getting a little bit better at doing it over time. But that also means we can't really compare what we know now against what they knew in 1973. Because back then, the quality of the data and, and just the amount of data that they had was way lower. We need to know how they're doing right now so that, say, 50 years from now, somebody can ask the same question you just asked. And rather than saying, well, we don't know what to compare it to, we can actually have a number to compare it to. According to the WWF, there are four factors to consider when deciding how vulnerable a species is. One, sensitivity. Is a species able to exist as is under changing climate conditions? Two, adaptive capacity. Is the species able to change in response to changes in the climate? Three, exposure. What is the extent of the change and variation in climate that the species has to, and will have to, deal with? Four, other threats. Is anything else threatening the species, or will human efforts to respond to climate change cause other potential threats? Based on these four factors, polar bears are very vulnerable to climate change. Over the next few years, 
it will become more important than ever to monitor polar bear populations and keep track of how they adjust to less sea ice. Has climate change increased the number of conflicts between polar bears and people? Yeah, we think so. And and it looks like they have. People and polar bears have both been living in this area for thousands of years. The issue comes into what happens when there's a conflict situation. Climate change is making it so that polar bears can't spend as much time on the sea ice because the sea ice isn't around for as much time during the year. So mostly in the summertime, in a lot of places, polar bears have to come on land. They can't spend the whole summer swimming. And so they are on land and often don't have good access to food. So they're eating from that refrigerator on their back. They're getting skinnier over the summer. And polar bears are really curious animals. They're really built for finding things that might be food and then going and investigating those things. And so when they're on land, they're more likely to be attracted into a community by the smells at the dump or the smells of people cooking or processing food. And especially if they're really skinny or nutritionally stressed, they start getting more motivated to get food and that makes them harder to scare away. And that's the times when polar bears can be particularly dangerous. Most of the time, polar bears are not really going to want to cause harm to people. They've got better things to do. They've got other things on their mind. And you don't want to always be thinking of polar bears as the enemy. And so being able to keep people safe is one of the ways that that people can live more harmoniously with wildlife. And your work in Arctic conservation is informed by indigenous knowledge and supporting Arctic food security. Can you explain what that means and how it protects animals and people? Yeah. So people in the Arctic and in Alaska, specifically Inuit, have been living alongside polar bears and other Arctic wildlife for thousands of years. And often in in pretty small communities that are right in polar bear habitat. And so if anyone knows polar bears and understands how polar bears have evolved, how they interact with their environment, what their behavior is, it's indigenous people who have been studying that for for thousands of years. So I think it's really important that the people who know those animals that well are involved not only in sharing knowledge, but also in helping to, to do the conservation and make the decisions about polar bear management and their habitat and things like that. And in Alaska, Arctic food security and especially indigenous food security requires a really healthy ecosystem because many indigenous people in Alaska live, like I said earlier, kind of as part of the ecosystem, not separate from it. And so they're getting food directly from the ocean, directly from the plants and the greens and the berries and the animals on the land and also the marine mammals. And so to ensure food security for traditional ways of eating in the Arctic is essentially to do conservation of, the, of that ecosystem. 
Some people assume that because they live so far away from the Arctic, they don't have to worry about polar bears and melting sea ice. What would you say to someone who assumes that this isn't their problem or that it's something that they can't help with? I think what affects polar bears affects all of us. So even if you don't care about polar bears, you really should care about climate change because it's not just the polar bears that are going to feel the impacts. It's already people who are feeling it and more and more people are going to be starting to feel it as we feel some of the weather impacts and the infrastructure impacts and and things like that that are going to impact everybody. How can parents and children best support the protection of polar bears and other Arctic wildlife? Keeping on beating that drum, talking to everybody you know about climate change is a really, really big one. Um, And there's also other things that are affecting wildlife. Commerce has an impact on Arctic wildlife. So for example, as the sea ice is melting, new opportunities for shipping are coming up because If there's no ice on the water, then maybe ships can come through and bring goods to people. So thinking about, you know, where is that thing that you're ordering coming from and how is it getting to you? And is it going to go into a landfill? Is that going to maybe go into the ocean? You know, thinking about how all of these things might be connected is is another way. But I think learning about them, talking to other people about them, getting excited about what is here and how we can keep it here. Um, is really important. Well, thanks for coming on, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you so much. This was great. It's a lot of fun. I've always thought polar bears were really cool and maybe even a bit scary, but I had no idea that they played such a huge role in our ecosystem. It was so great meeting Elizabeth and discovering how climate change is impacting polar bears and other Arctic residents, humans, and wildlife alike. You can learn more about Elizabeth and her work using the links in our show notes. That's right. And to test your knowledge, we have a quiz about today's episode. The three questions are... 1. What is a polar bear's favorite food? 2. What are three reasons the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet? 3. Why might climate change lead to more conflicts between humans and polar bears? Check out our Facebook and Instagram, at We The Children Podcast, to find this week's quiz questions and post your answers there. Or visit WeTheChildrenPodcast.com and leave us a voice message with your responses. We just might play them on our next episode, where we'll reveal the correct answers. Congratulations to our listener Kelsey, who got a perfect score on last episode's quiz about climate advocacy with guest Bailey Jondam. Here's Kelsey with the correct answer. One, Bailey was six years old when she went to the river cleanup with her mother. Two, the term Sikola Olam means nature school in English. Three, the name of the global conference on climate change they mentioned on the show was COP or the Conference of the Parties. Subscribe to We the Children on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, we the children have the power to make a difference for our planet. Until next time, we'll leave you with today's voice of hope. Marine biologist, Taylor Simpkins Gardner. I find hope in conversations like this. These conversations make us as scientists think about the application of our research and want to be impactful. Of course, the goal for any research is 
to make a difference, right? Whether it's understanding a critically endangered species or figuring out which seaweed is going to biodegrade the best for the use of bioplastics. We all have really good intentions and I find hope in our collaboration. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>